0: Uh, Joel chapter 2, starting at verse 18. We've had two weeks, two dark, heavy weeks seeing God's judgments and struggle. Now we see what happens when God's people come back to him. We see grace, we see life, we see hope and we see joy. Then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. The Lord will reply to them, I am sending you grain, new wine, and oil, enough to satisfy you fully. Never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. I will drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and barren land, with its front columns going into the eastern sea and those in the rear into the western sea, and its stench will go up, its smell will rise. Surely he has done great things. Be not afraid, O land, be glad and rejoice, surely the Lord has done great things. Be not afraid, O wild animals, for the open pastures are becoming green, the trees are bearing their fruit, the fig tree and the vine yield their riches. Be glad, O people of Zion, rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the autumn rains in righteousness. He sends you abundant showers, both autumn and spring rains as before the threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have The great locusts and the young locusts. The other locusts and the locusts. Were my great army that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full. And you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. Never again will my people be shamed then you will know that I am in Israel and that I am the Lord your God and that there is no other. Never again will my people be shamed. Romans 8, 28, page 197. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written. That is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, the purpose of the passage in Joel, which we just read, is to give us and to show us the joyful confidence in God that we are given when we come back to Him, when in Bible language we repent. It's a truth you'll see again and again when people become Christians. There is a new assurance, new confidence, a new joy that goes hand in glove with that. And the key verse of this section, verse 27, tells us what the whole purpose of the section is. Then you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other. These events happen to God's ancient people. Israel to teach us God's modern people, church, the confidence and the certainty that we can have in Him. This verse told them that through the events this passage talks about, they would come to know that He is in Israel. God is present with His people. They would come to know that He is the Lord their God. In other words, that He's their God. He's committed to them, as He is to us. They would come to know that there is no other, no other God, no other power like him anywhere. So that those who have confidence in him will know that they cannot be shaken by any other force or power in the universe. Just as we heard in Romans 8 as well. And finally, when this is finally fulfilled, never again will my people be shamed. That is, we will have a joyful confidence in him and his work that is never undercut in the end, by shame or doubts or fear, things that all of us in our present lives probably face, at least now and then. The confidence of knowing God like this does spread through our whole lives, and that's where this passage takes us. Now, we have, as I said, had two weeks of hearing about God's judgment. First, a historical judgment in the past. God's people had seen their crops, their food devoured, by a plague of locusts, little insects that, as still happens nowadays, came and devoured all the crops all over. But through that, God brought his people to realise how far from him they were. He brought them to repent. Secondly, there was a future judgment. That locust plague was a picture, a sign of the great judgment to come, which they and we and everyone must come back to God to avoid. Now in this week we see why God has done all this, why he gives these warnings, because when they come back to God in repentance, in other words, when they or we come back to God asking him to lead us through life, rejecting the different ways we've been choosing to live our own way instead of his, and asking him to forgive us for everything that we've done wrong, when we repent like that, he takes our sadness and he does turn it into confidence. He calls us to sadness over what we've done wrong precisely so that he can fill us with a new joy and confidence. As we heard in the Sermon on the Mount not so long ago, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. And that's what's happening here. In the rest of Joel, we'll see firstly this week a historical blessing, how in that time and place God lifted up and restored and encouraged his people. Then next week, we see what was for them all future blessings far, far in the future, but for others are partly present and partly the future. The incredible way God calls the people to join His work in the world. In both of those, the repentance, the coming back to God, has made possible something new and wonderful. Now, the structure of this passage is very, very clear. Um, firstly, in, in 18 to 20, we see the good news that God will rescue his people. That's, you know, if you look at that, it's Joel's words. That, well, Joel passing on God's word to his people. But then in 21 to 24, Joel himself starts to lead the people in a song of rejoicing and praise. 21 to 24. And that um, is it, shows us the gift of rejoice that comes through repentance. And thirdly, um, in 25 to 27, God interrupts that song of praise To shower the people with kindness so that they can have a strong confidence in him. So firstly the rescue that comes from repentance 18 to 20. We see God rescue his people that simply when they come back to him they repent. So after last week the people are truly sorry for what they've done wrong. They come back to him, they pray for forgiveness, they pray for help to change and this is God's response. He rescues them. He gives back to them what they had lost. It says he's jealous for them. He took pity on his people. Huh? Now, jealousy can be a horrible emotion, can't it? But there is another kind. Uh, I talked to a man not long ago who he was helping his fiance look after her grandchild. <coughs> now when that baby was just a few weeks old, he was mistreated, ignored, not fed, not loved, by its mother or its father, and finally thrown forcibly against the wall, breaking bones all across his body. The man I was talking to was overflowing with a powerful protective urge towards that baby, as I'm sure uh, the, the baby's grandmother who was looking after it with him was as well. You would not want to try and hurt that baby with that man around. You would not want do anything that wasn't the very best for that baby with that man around. That jealousy which he feels in response to the horrible things that have happened, that is a little picture, I think, of God's jealousy. He feels that powerful, protective caring urge towards his people. And in that pity and that jealousy towards God's people, in verse 19, we see that he, he cares for them. He sends them grain and wine and oil you remember they've been facing famine after locusts after drought. They've been facing starvation and desperation. But he will give them grain to feed them. He'll give them wine and oil for them to enjoy. Not just enough to get by, but enough to satisfy you fully. And secondly, he says that he will never make them an object of scorn to the nations. He'll take away their shame. Now I think um, in the UK we struggle to feel this a little bit. you know, The days when Britain was top nation are gone. But nonetheless, we're not at the bottom of the pile. Uh, So we've never really felt the pain of being properly kicked about like a little nation like this. Uh, Perhaps we felt a little as a church. You know, once the church was respected and treated as central in the nation's life, at least theoretically, but now it's often treated as irrelevant, laughable, maybe even a touch dangerous in a powerless sort of way. They felt that shame. They've been laughed at, treated as fools, bullied. Other nations think, "What, what is this strange little people? They claim to worship the Lord Almighty of heaven and earth, and they can't even give them food to eat." He says, "Now I'll take away that shame. I'll give you what you need. And when I'm with you, people will look and stare, at them, and they'll say, there's something special there. Something different. This people is not like other people. They are satisfied. They're happier. They live in a way that's just better.'" perhaps be something to do with the God they worship. God rescues them, too, from this great locust swarm, which he describes as an here. Uh, it's going to be swept away, like right, by the wind, as the locust swarms usually are, in the end. The front of the swarm is going to end up drowning in the Dead Sea. The rest of the locusts are going to be in an empty desert. And then the last few of the stragglers will be in the Mediterranean, the Western Sea. Oh, all people's prayers have been fully answered. Instead of hunger, they have satisfaction. Instead of shame, they have confidence. Instead of fear, they have peace. And as we said, it was verse 27 so that you will know that I am in the midst of Israel. I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. They see that now. They see He's in their midst, not a distant God, not a vague force, but one who cares. And He's one who can do what no God or man can do. God do does this so that they can be confident in this God who loves and rescues them. Now for us, now the New Testament does not promise us grain and wine and oil, or money to save, spend on uh, heaven's food, or any of the equivalents. We aren't promised that life will be easy. We aren't promised that we won't go through tough times. Although He does promise to provide for us and care for us. But more than that, he also promises to give to his people an assurance and a confidence that he's made himself our God, that we are safe with him, with a satisfaction and a confidence in God and an underlying peace that the world cannot take away. As uh, Roman says, the kingdom of God is a matter of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit. Sometimes that's not obvious from the inside in our own lives, in a funny way. Um, the um, German theologian in prison Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote how he felt restless and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, when he was in prison by the Nazis. And he also wrote about a poem talking about how he seemed from the outside. He says, "They often tell me I step from my cell's confinement calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house." They often tell me I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly as though it was mine to command. They tell me that I bore the days of misfortune equally, smiling proudly, like one accustomed to win. So on the outside, he was perhaps not aware of the depth of the peace that God gave him, but others could see he was not ground down by it in the way other prisoners would be. God gives an assurance and a confidence in him. That comes most deeply of all from the realization of what he's already done for us in the past. As we heard in Romans, he has given his son for us. He will do everything else. He will get us to be with him at the end, on the final day. Secondly, um, 21 to 24. It's a song, it's a joyful song, this section, calling God's people to rejoice in what God has done for them. This is the rejoicing that comes from repentance. And it's a reminder to the people to rejoice. Joel is leading them in, in, in song, in prayer. God has been very good to them, as he has been very, very good to us. So the locusts have brought their suffering. The drought have brought its suffering, not just on the people, but on the land and the animals too. The land is brown and dead. The we saw a picture in the earlier chapters of even the wild animals desperate for water, desperate for food. And Joel calls the, the land and the people and the animals in turn to rejoice. Be not afraid, O land. Be glad and rejoice. Things are back the way they should be. God has done great things. Be not afraid, wild animals. Life has come back to the deer and the birds and the wild And God, of course, cares about all His creation, land and plants and creatures. And then, be glad, O people of Zion. Zion, of course, is another name for Jerusalem, the city where you went at that time to worship God. So all the worshipping people of God are to rejoice in him. Because all these things given back to them are a sign, aren't they? They, That they've been forgiven. God, God called them to say sorry, to repent, to turn back, to ask for forgiveness. And the sign that they've been given that forgiveness is that they've been saved and rescued and loved in all, all these wonderful ways. That life is back to normal. He's sending the rain to help the grain sprout and grow. He's giving them what they needed. He's giving great plenty and they are to rejoice in it. The threshing floors and the vats are going to overflow. and they June they were ruined because people didn't have anything to put in them. But now, Life is full and joyful and full of satisfaction again. For us, it's a simple reminder, isn't it, of how we respond to God's kindness. He has forgiven us. He's loved us too. He's poured out all kinds of good on us. He's showed us that he is our God as he was theirs. You know, When we are flat or empty or unsatisfied or failing to feel the joy of God, Sometimes it's because we haven't come to him to repent and say sorry, as they hadn't earlier. Sometimes, too, it's simply because we haven't thanked him and praised him for what he's done. And that's why we sing in church, isn't it? We don't always feel like it, and I'm sure I'm not alone in sometimes coming to church and singing because that's what we do in church, rather than because I feel it from the heart. We do that deliberately even when we don't feel it, because by singing to one another we remind ourselves. Of what we have to be thankful for. We stir up in ourselves and one another the joy that we ought to have. We'll call in our hearts and one another's hearts to rejoice and be glad in the God who has been so good to us. In the same way, each day it's so good to take time to simply pause and thank God for what he has done for us, both in that day and the little things, that things of daily life, but also the greater, bigger things. his rescue, his love, the life that he gives. And when we do, when we take time to thank God and to appreciate what he's done, we find that the joy and life comes back into our hearts, especially when we remember the deeper things that he's done, giving his son for us, sending his spirit into our hearts. His loving and keeping us till the final day. Now, the final section, the confidence that comes from repentance from 25 to 27. God showers his people with kindness so that they will know him. And he showers us with kindness so that we will know him. Even when Joel is praising God, he's in the middle of praising for his kindness. God interrupts. Because he hasn't finished. He has more good things to pour out on him than them. He's not satisfied, He's certainly, with giving them everything they asked for. He says, verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten. Or in another translation, I will restore to you for the years the locusts have eaten. Just think how it was for that people. You know, they toiled year after year, decade after decade on their farms. I and mean, the years of drought, and then the locusts have taken it from them. All the result of all those years and decades of hard work ruined their farms, their livelihoods, their homes. Those years of hunger would seem like utterly lost years. And the years before them, of all the hard work and building up their farms, again, all wasted, empty. God says, I will repay you for the years that the swarming locusts have been I'm not just going to make things better, I'm going to make up every loss with greater blessing. This is our God, too. The God who tells us in Ephesians he's able to do more than, immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. To make up for the years of regret and shame that we all have. And we all do, don't we? We have regrets about our past, regrets, past sins that are wasted time money the failure to work or learn or love or serve God mistakes and relationships or not loving our kids in the way we should have done so many different regrets but perhaps most of all a simple failure to come to God until a in life or to live as a Christian even if we called ourselves one so we look back on the progress we could have made in goodness and love and knowledge and all the service and good we could have done to others, how much more deeply we could have known God, and we look back and we feel better, nostalgic, and wish we could do things over. Perhaps you can feel within what it is to have had the locusts consume those years. Well, God is the one who repays and restores what the locusts have eaten, even in this life. Now, He doesn't change the past. He doesn't take away what has happened. But so often he will bring a new deep satisfaction, not only in knowing him, but in serving him, a new purpose and life, even very late in life, that comforts us and lets us see how, as in the words of Romans 8, he is working all things for good, using even our years, our wasted years, for a good purpose for us and for others. He doesn't sweep away the consequences of our earlier mistakes in life, but he does use them. The, the great Baptist preacher, preaching in this verse, Spurgeon, said, You cannot have back your time, but there is a strange and wonderful way in which God can give back to you the wasted blessings, the unripened fruits of the years over which you mourned. God can restore your life which has up to now been blighted and eaten up with the locusts and sin by giving you divine grace in the present and in the future. He can make it complete and blessed and useful to his praise and glory. Even more than that, far more than that of course. One day he will utterly restore to us everything that we have ever lost when one day we are face to face with him in heaven. Revelation 24, 1, the end of the story of the Bible, God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. And in that day, even our deepest regrets will be remade, reshaped by God so that we can have joy in him and what he's done in giving life despite everything and rework those things into a pattern his good pattern of what he has done with our lives and with all things we will have joy forevermore with a promise like that we can see how these final words of Joel are true for us also you will know that I am in Israel, that I am the Lord your God, and that there is no other, never again will my people be shaken. So, do we know Him? Do we know this God? The God who gives such wonderful confidence and joy to those who come back to Him, who loves us and is ours forever, and He will sweep away all regrets. If we don't, Let's come to him now. Let's repent and turn back to him and find that he is more wonderful to know him than we'd ever imagined. And if we do know him, and perhaps we have lost our joy, our eagerness if we're flat and dull. Let's blow off the cobwebs. Let's come and repent. Let's be sorry for the time we've wasted for our dull hearts and come and remember his goodness and praise his incredible kindness. Let's pray.